You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Nice to speak with you, Kyla. You sound so enthused. <laughs> Is well, it speak with you. It's always nice to speak with you. I didn't see you today. I saw you yesterday. You were in the office, but we've gone through this period of having uh, awkward office situations because of our uh, rent eviction from our old Beatty Street office last year. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, in the very near future, we are settled in our new permanent home. I am not holding out any hope because for the last year, it seems that hope is dead. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say that, but uh, I'm I'm optimistic right now. I guess we'll see. We will see. Anyway, uh, lots to talk about this week. Um, there was a big decision from the BC Court of Appeal in a case called Gordon. Gordon and British Columbia Superintendent Motor Vehicles, a rare appeal of a judicial review decision where the applicant was actually successful. Exceptionally rare, uh, an administrative driving prohibition case. Um, it um, it leaves me uh, with the conclusion that one cannot determine what's going to happen when one appeals one's case to the BC Court of Appeal. Those are a lot of ones. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's it, it, it's I, I'm I'm I've used the case in numerous hearings already this week. I don't know when it came out Monday or Tuesday, uh, but I keep referring to it. And I'm not referring to any paragraphs. I'm just referring to principles of it. Um, but um, it uh, seems so inconsistent. Um, in some respects with all of the other decisions we've seen. Yes. In fact, the BC Court of Appeal takes a pretty, like, pro-charter rights path, which has been not their previous sort of way of looking at things. Um, Previously, they, uh, in the RB case, which we talked about maybe 18 months ago, um, basically we're like, eh, no charter rights were violated. And even if they were violated, it doesn't really matter. And that's, that's, that's that. Uh, sucks to be you. Goodbye. Have a nice day, Mr. RB. Hope your life is totally ruined. Yeah. And, um, you know, about two months ago, we had these few decisions, Flores, Rivard, and Dollywall, which was the one that Anna argued. And, I started thinking to myself that maybe the court is going to take a dimmer view of some of the unreasonable reasoning. I mean, you know, of course you have to persuade the court. Uh, it's a very high standard when you're, when you're uh, appealing a uh, administrative decision, but I thought they were going to start, you know, scrutinizing it more. Um, and this would sort of suggest that that's the thing, that maybe they got together at some judges' conference and were discussing how awful the decisions were. <laughs> uh, 
but I, I can't, I can't quite reconcile this with all of the other cases except the 10 B aspect. So maybe you should lay it out a little bit for us. Yeah. So, um, do you mean lay out the facts or, or, well, sure. I mean, what the issue is, it's a, it's a, it's a 10 B issue, but the case is called Gordon, first of all. So, so Mr. Gordon, um, was the driver of a vehicle. He was issued an ADP. So similar to an IRP, but no vehicle impoundment. Um, and it was incident started in March, 2020, uh, VPD received a complaint of a car driving all over the road with a blown out front tire. There was a license plate number. The police show up, um, and locate the vehicle parked on the side of the road. Mr. Gordon's like hanging out nearby. He's exhibiting indicia of impairment. He's swaying back and forth. He's peeing on the curb. He's stumbling to the car. He gets in. He pulls away, swerves, almost hits some cars. And the police um, don't pull him over initially because they had received information that he was involved in a high-speed flight from police. So they wait for backup. Backup comes. They box him in. They stop him. They pull him out of the car and uh, handcuff him. They detect more symptoms of impairment, and then one of the officers goes, okay, I'm going to arrest you for impaired driving. Reads him his right to counsel. He says, I want to talk to a lawyer. She then says, okay, then reads him the breath demand. Doesn't put him in touch with a lawyer. He says, I'm not going to blow. She tries to explain the demand to him, the consequences of refusing. And he's like, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. You guys are out of line. I'm not going to blow. So he's rearrested then for refusal, again told of the right to counsel, again indicates that he wants to talk to a lawyer. And uh, they don't make any efforts to put him in touch with a lawyer, nor do they take him back to the police station to either talk to a lawyer or provide breath samples in the event that he changes his mind after getting legal advice that he's entitled to. And he ends up released um, with the ADP. So he files for judicial review. Well, first he appeals the ADP and the adjudicator rejects his appeal argument on the basis of the fact uh, that he, he wouldn't have had the right to speak with a lawyer when, when he did. Um, and uh, essentially says that it's not a reasonable excuse that you didn't get to contact a lawyer before the sample was was taken. Um, the adjudicator found there was no evidence to contradict the fact that they informed him of his right to counsel, so they were mindful of the fact that he knew he wanted to speak a lawyer. They didn't ask further investigative questions even though they read him a breath demand and got the refusal, which is a piece of evidence. And they didn't tell him that he would not be given an opportunity to speak with a lawyer before a breath sample was taken. By contrast, they, the adjudicator found that Mr. Gordon was argumentative, dismissive, and belligerent with police. Um, and the adjudicator said that it was his actions, not the actions of police, that facilitated his inability to contact counsel because essentially it was reasonable for police to not facilitate a contact with a lawyer at the roadside in what she characterized as an unsecured environment, essentially a manufactured officer safety concern. Yeah. So he challenges it. Common thing. This is the adjudicator coming to this conclusion. 
not that it was something that was in the evidence that that's the reason that they didn't allow the contact counsel at the roadside. This was the adjudicator speculating about it or manufacturing a, a conclusion, I guess. Yes. And so he applies for judicial review. Um, <clears throat> judicial review uh, is denied on the basis of the fact um, that uh, the adjudicator concluded that Mr. Gordon had, this is from the original judgment, um, preempted the process for obtaining access by his own conduct. That line of reasoning implicitly balances Mr. Gordon's right to counsel and the circumstances and impact of his refusal against the objectives of the Motor Vehicle Act. There's nothing unreasonable about the adjudicator engaging in that analysis and ultimately finds that the adjudicator's decision was therefore reasonable. So, happens most of the case, which leaves us both very cynical. <laughs> yes. And on appeal, the Court of Appeal, first um, beginning at paragraph 49, goes through a lengthy analysis of the way in which charter values essentially come up in IRP or ADP or administrative cases. We have, a, have had a very different approach in BC as opposed to Alberta. Uh, and when we went to the Supreme Court of Canada, when we were there, it wasn't our case, but we were there for the Wilson case. Um, we were there for the Goodwin line of cases. And Beverly McLaughlin said, yes, charter rights and charter remedies should be available at this tribunal. Uh, and the rest of the Supreme Court of Canada adopted the BC Court of Appeals view, which was that tribunals can't give charter remedies, so police can violate charter rights and uh, in these investigations, and you have no remedy. Yeah, yeah. So the Court of Appeal essentially sets out the framework, which is that administrative tribunals and administrative actors are obligated to consider charter values in their exercises of discretion. And the first thing the Court of Appeal has mm -hmm. to determine is is confirming or revoking an ADP, an exercise of discretion. And the superintendent at the appeal took the position that there really is no discretion because the adjudicator either confirms or revokes. There's no middle ground between the two. But the Court of Appeal disagreed. They said there is an exercise of discretion because determining the facts that lead to the confirmation or revocation includes assessing the weight to be given, the pieces of evidence in the review hearing that are adduced, as well as determining the weight to be given, um, uh, sorry, determining the credibility and reliability of various witnesses, and also making determinations on what facts they're finding. So all of these are discretionary decisions. The exercise of discretion leads to the revocation or the confirmation, as the case may be. And this is different than what when the court talks about it not being an exercise of discretion. It's where the law dictates a certain result must follow, whereas the law doesn't dictate a result must follow in any given case. Yes, concur. So. That is a very useful discussion because Go ahead. I was assuming you were going to talk at some point. Um, well, it, it basically provides a remedy now at this point, which we've never had before. Yeah. 
and a pathway to a remedy that the adjudicators can't get around. And essentially what the adjudicators are supposed to do is look at, you know, what is the purpose of the legislative scheme, which obviously take drunk drivers off the road, provide summary avenue of redress for a driver who believes the officer was wrong in their exercise of discretion. And it also has a second purpose um, or a second issue that the adjudicator has to determine. So they have to balance that with the violation of somebody's charter rights. And if the violation outweighs the purpose of the scheme on the facts of the case, then it can lead to no weight being given effectively to the police evidence. So essentially, basically, you could argue that instead of the evidence being ruled inadmissible, you can say no weight should be given to it, which has the same consequent effect, which is uh, a silly way, in my view, of getting to the same result. Um, and I think it may be considered backtracking by the Court of Appeal. But my concern is that they're claiming that they got this discretion. Um, and that it's a discretionary thing, uh, when the historic view has been that they have no discretion, except they claim occasionally that they have discretion as a policy regulator. And now they will be able to come to, I mean, that the, the rules will become fuzzier yet because they can take the view that they are applying their discretion as a policy regulator to something or to accept certain evidence or to disregard charter violations. But I don't think that they can do that because if you're, if when you move it out of the charter values analysis, and of course this is specific to charter values, but when you move it out of the charter values analysis and you go, you know, as a policy decision, it would be wrong to believe a person who says that they're sleeping in their car. Or it would be wrong as a policy decision to uh, confirm or revoke a prohibition where somebody is um, has consumed some alcohol and they're at the warn range, not the fail range. They have a problem because at that point they're acting outside the scope of their statutory authority, right? This is limited to charter values. But if they start to use that in the assessment of the weight to be given evidence beyond the scope of applying charter values to the exercises of discretion, they're instead just engaging in policy analysis when they are not explicitly a policy tribunal. Well, they may claim that they're explicitly a policy tribunal now on the basis of this. And this is as just like when we complain about the Stillman analysis being overturned by a Subaru line of authority. This has turned it from some fairly clear rules to the as we feel, as you feel like it rules. Right, and but it you're seems to be for the purpose of, of recognizing the fact that police probably shouldn't violate charter rights. Right. But I think you're conflating when you're saying this is going to, this is going to take this out of, of, out of it, you know, and into just a policy tribunal, you're conflating that this is specific to charter values and you can't apply policy considerations to achieving a different result if you are satisfied of one of the grounds of review. Like it doesn't work in favor of the police. The police don't get like a charter analysis or a policy analysis in favor of their evidence. 
I have a question for you. Do you think this will go beyond 10B? So 10B, your right to counsel and your right to be notified and facilitation and, and steps taken to ensure that you, you can contact counsel and obtain uh, legal advice while you're detained by the police during the course of the investigation and before you do anything that's too significant that can't be unwound. Um, you know, right to counsel has always been considered sacrosanct. It's silly that it's sacrosanct because, you know, what do people do after the fact? They provide a sample, right? You can't refuse. Uh, you're not entitled to refuse. And we all know that the legal advice is the same legal advice every time that is shut up and blow more or less. Um, but for whatever reason, 10B seems to really always attract the the interest of the court. 10B violations always seem to be the thing. Um, and I wonder why that is, because there's so many other charter rights that we see violated all the time in ADP and IRP cases that would never get the light of day like this. But here we have it in the context of 10B, and suddenly we've got, you know, an experienced uh, judge from the Court of Appeal who's uh, got lots of experience in uh, administrative context and, and this particular area of the law saying, oh, well, hang on, we're going to give it, we're going to give a, uh, we're, we're creating a path to a 10B remedy. You think it's just 10B? I, I think it certainly could be argued to expand beyond 10B. I think that you would have a stretch on 10A unless there was some other sort of arrest um, or some other, you know, lengthy detention beforehand, although the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in La France, um, which we talked about last week, might expand the scope of arguing 10A, notwithstanding the appeal court's decision in RB. I think Section 8, for sure. Um, but really, when when you look at this type of tribunal, like what you're mostly getting is 10B, because even a delay making an ASD demand or conducting an ASD test, well, you know, cognitively, that's a Section 8 issue. It's also a Section 10B issue. So I think you can rely well, it's, on... It's a 10B issue immediately, but it's exacerbated to a much worse 10B issue. And then it's a demand for something that is no longer pursuant to the criminal code. So you're entitled to, should be entitled to talk to the lawyer. But so far, that's never, never gotten very far. Right. But it might now because it is a 10B issue. And the right to counsel is triggered if the demand or the test are not immediate, barring some justification for it. I, I, I don't know what your feelings are about this decision. Um, you know, I, I, I feel that it's a backtracking. Um, and I feel, it doesn't, I feel it doesn't generate, it doesn't create any certainty in the law for us. And I feel it it um, it is almost a recognition that they've been wrong up until now. But I I I would be shocked if it actually ends up applied. Um, well, and I suspect that the next time it comes up, it'll be a different court of appeal judge, and it'll go a different direction. Because well, I, I like my my general feeling is that the you know the court of appeal has had no interest in charter violations with. IRPs or ADPs whatsoever, like the charter doesn't apply, has been the viewpoint. And 
this is a, a seems like an anomaly. You, know, you and I have seen in during the course of the pandemic, and we've talked about this, and I don't know that we've talked about it on the podcast, uh, egregious charter violations. Like it's gotten so bad. It's gotten so bad that it's shocking. When you read the police reports, you can't believe it. I conducted a hearing today. I, I mean, I, I, these things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just gotten so bad. But the court has not been had any interest in it, right? Like, you know, drunk drivers, nobody, they have no sympathy for them in, in BC. Um, and uh, there's never been a remedy for them. And I don't know. I just think maybe this, this is just a one-off decision. And I, two months ago, I was saying that the court's going to, come down harder on these things but i don't know i i i, I don't know I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss this time so you're i was one. correct maybe i was correct in my prediction earlier but i don't know so it turns out you're the one with no hope um well i, I mean i have hope about i have hope about our office situation um and i i cannot reconcile this decision with previous decisions of our court um, and, uh, I wonder how it came out. I wonder how this happened. I, I, I less now think about the facts or the area of the law. And I wonder about the, the background, dis- backroom discussions that lead to these things, decisions being rendered. You know, what are the three judges of the court of appeal go into the back and talk about what do they talk about over lunch with their colleagues? I guess has been my question. How do we come up with these decisions? But again, you know, I I feel that we dropped the ball when we gave up the Stillman analysis, and I felt that that was a clear statement of the law. And I thought uh, Antonio Lemaire was was uh, excellent in his uh, reasoning in there, and he made it a lot more straightforward. And I don't know, you know. People could argue that it was intellectually, um, you know, from their perspective, that intellectual honesty required rejecting the Stillman analysis and replacing it with Subaru and Grant. Um, But what we ended up with was the, you know, uh, charter violation. Do you feel that it's bad um, test? And I think this is another situation where maybe the issue is do you feel that it's bad you have to reject the police officers you just have to just disregard the police officers evidence if you feel that it's bad which is hardly a test to me and if it only applies in 10b then okay i guess that's part of the test but the court's not clear on it yeah the end, end of my rant Okay, well, let's talk about something else then. Let's okay. talk about police officers getting in trouble. Sure. So a police officer in um, Kamloops or Kelowna um, recently got in trouble for uh, drinking and driving, but didn't get in trouble for it at the same time but a lot lot less trouble than other people yes um so this officer ended up uh getting um getting charged after a night of drinking 
<laughs> with his friends, who are also all RCMP officers, he decided to do the classic thing that most uh, people who go out drinking and driving do, uh, which is go get himself um, some drive through fast food. Yeah. And he passes out in the drive through Police come, they wake him up, uh, think he's drunk, and they start an impaired driving investigation. He refuses to blow. And in the course of the investigation, ends up getting in, like, a fight with these other officers. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting. And uh, as a result of that, um, ended up charged with a series of offenses. Um, including, uh, I think, assault PO, uh, obstruction, and refusal to blow. He was not charged with impaired driving. And uh, resolved his matter, fled it out uh, earlier this week uh, to a, um, um, to an obstruct, and then got like a three-month driving prohibition, probation, and a fine. Well, it's a pretty good result. Yeah. I think so. Possible blaze pickets. Yes. Dog handler. Gets to keep his job. Yeah. I'm just amazed how arrogant they can be. You know, they're just as human as anybody else. They make mistakes just like anybody else. The arrogance is what gets me. I mean, I've definitely had quite a few IRPs issued by this officer. I mean, not yeah. me personally. I've defended them. <laughs> Uh, well, I haven't seen any in a while. Um, maybe that's because he's been been uh, pulled off duty for that period. It was a Burger King drive-through. I don't know where it was. I don't think it was in the Okanagan. I don't think it was in Kamloops. Um, found the case uh, reported on CTV here. It says that a Burger King drive-through RCMP officer at Burger King drive-through. Um, I was hoping it was the ANW in Kamloops because I defended a number of people. <laughs> For AW Gamblers. That was an ongoing joke for a while. Yeah. Um, he, he was in the police car, which is even better. Yeah. Yeah. Crossing the Golden Ears Bridge, he scraped his police vehicle on a concrete barrier on the side of the bridge, causing approximately $7,000 in damage to the rear and passenger side of the vehicle, the documents say. The damage done indicates that he posed a serious risk. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, the, uh, it's very funny because when police officers are charged with, uh, a drinking driving offense, uh, the argument that is always, uh, posed to the other side, people are always very forgiving of them. Um, and, uh, cause they, you know, I guess they don't want to deal with the fact that police do this. And unfortunately, actually, if you, if you set a Google alert for this, you're going to get hits every day of police officers in North America charged with drunk driving. Um, but the way that it's often characterized as is that they leave such stressful lives as police officers. And therefore, you know, it was just a, a rare mistake in a police officer's stressful life. At the same time, um, I mean, I, I, I get it. All sorts of people have stressful lives, but more often than not, I, I think it's probably partially motivated by the belief that they'll get away with it because 
you know, if they get in trouble, there'll be a fellow officer who will pull them over who will just drive them home. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> is the results in his case were were pretty good. But we're talking about a marked RCMP police vehicle. Um, Behavior disrespectful, uncooperative, combative. But but two things. First of all, he got a fine, so. He pled to resisting arrest. He got a fine. So he's got a criminal got record. A record. For yeah. Resisting arrest. That's the end of that RCMP career. And he also uh, had, you know, he was struggling with substance use and had PTSD from the course of, of his duties as a police officer. So on the one hand, like, you know, you can, you can say, let's, let's, remember that police officers are just as guilty as everybody else and maybe they shouldn't be so self-righteous about drinking and driving but at the same time this is a person who was struggling with a mental health issue and is it fair to saddle them with a criminal record i don't like anybody getting a criminal record no um his loss of income over the course of his life as a result of this i mean he might rejig and find something else and one hopes that he does uh, but his loss of income, loss in income uh, from his police officer salary to a regular schmuck salary, say a loss of thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, add that up over twenty years, uh, and uh, expand on that as the investment capacity that he would have of that extra income, and uh, the, uh, the 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 manner in which that divide would increase over the years, you can say that over the course of his lifetime, it's going to cost him a couple. Yeah. So it's pretty harsh. You get a criminal record. That's what it costs you. You get a criminal record for drunk driving. People sit there and they calculate, oh, you're going to have to pay $7,500 for an impaired driving lawyer. Meanwhile, the, the savings to you over your life, if you avoid that criminal conviction, are probably in the millions of dollars. People don't often calculate that. Yes. So that's that's that. But, you know, many people might call this officer our the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. But he's not. No, we have a Ridiculous driver of the week. Do you have the information there in front of you, or do you want me to? I do. Do you? Let's hear it, because it's a great one. Well, it's great, because you know it's always great when it starts with Florida man. <laughs> charged with DUI. Now, Paul, do you think this Florida man was driving on the highway? Well, I found it, so I know about it. Come on, play the game. Do I you mean, think this Florida man was driving on the highway? Uh, No. No. Do you think Florida man was driving on a driveway? No, no. Do you think this Florida man was driving a boat? Well, no, but that's a common one for Florida man. Do you think this Florida man drove into a moat? Uh, moat rhymes with boat. Um, no, no, I don't think so. Not a, not an eighteen wheeler. Not a uh, not a chopper motorcycle, not a, um, a Dodge painted up like the General Lee. 
uh, not driving a dump truck or a tank. No, he was, was driving. The, I was doing the Dr. Seuss thing. You totally yeah. ruined it. Not an 18 wheeler, not a car that was a real squealer. Yeah. Uh, okay. He was driving a motorized shopping cart. And where was he driving his motorized shopping cart, Paul? In the Walmart. One the Walmart. He had flags on the back for Trump. Motorized shopping cart, drunk, driving in the Walmart. The guy is charged with DUI. And open bottle of Smirnoff vodka right next Good to him. him. So Aaron Gregory, 39, swerved through the store, ran into shelves, and nearly mowed down customers on Sunday. <laughs> the police reported when they were called to the store, he was allegedly hauling an open bottle of Smirnoff vodka inside a backpack inside a basket of the scooter. So it's a scooter, I guess, with like a cart on the front. <laughs> and he's charged for DUI in the Walmart. That's pretty ridiculous. Yep. We've had some touch and go ridiculous drivers over the uh, years. This one is, uh, you know, returning to the really ridiculous. Yep, absolutely. Totally ridiculous. So there you have it. Yes. Now, that is our podcast. You know, I told Jay last week that he, at the end of the podcast, he should probably put an excerpt of one of your songs. So I'm hoping that he does that here because I'm sure the listeners would enjoy it. What the heck? Why not? Who knows? Uh, that's up, for, up, up to Jay to do. And it's up to us to tell our listeners that we want to thank them for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. And uh, if you need to get a, us a call about a driving law-related issue or you're drunk on your scooter in Walmart and want to call us for help with that, you can find us at 604-685-8889 or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.